Hello and welcome everyone to our next study in the encounter. This is for December 19th. This is our third lesson in this quarter. It's entitled Full of Grace and Truth. And our scripture today comes from John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18. Our memory verse is John 1:14 which says and the word became flesh and lived among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the father's only son full of grace and truth. Our devotional reading comes from Genesis chapter one. It's really interesting to kind of pair those two up. So if you get a chance, take a look at those two. Before we dive into our study today, let's have our prayer for illumination. Eternal God, the more we reflect on the truth of your word, the more amazed we become at your love for us. Thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that by faith in him, we might be made the righteousness of God. Amen. Amen. So Chris, what a beautiful introduction we had today, because I totally agree with Kip. <laughs> I do not. Entire I know you don't, which is great, because we have these two very differing perspectives. I am the same way. I was like, Kip, I get you. I totally get you here. I used to hate to read as well. And coming in as a pastor, it was like, they assigned you all this reading and all these commentaries. And I was like, oh, I'm going to die. I just did not like to read. Um, and I agreed with him as well that why do we have to interpret all of this stuff? Why do we, why can't we just take it for face value and just read it the way it is? But uh, I also agree the more that I got into it, the more I read, the more I understand that interpretation is necessary and so studying all this and doing commentaries and really digging deep into the scripture and understanding the why and the how and who and all that good stuff is, is incredibly important. But you said you didn't agree that you do love to no, read. No, I mean, I do love to read. I don't disagree necessarily with Kip on this one, but I mean, I do love to read like, and I love to try to find out. So, I mean, like there's also different thoughts and that come into play when it comes to interpretation of scripture. Like obviously sure. we all have our hermeneutical principle and we all come at it in a different, a different way. And so um, like my default mode is to read things, as you said, my default mode is to read things straightforward. Like unless yeah. there's a good reason for me not to, I'm not going to, uh, but certain structures, if something is written poetically, if something is written with intentional symbolic words or heavy heavy loaded words like logos which we'll talk about i mean those are right. those are loaded words that beg and cry out and to remain faithful to the the reading you have to dig deeper yeah right? yeah absolutely and for those of our listeners uh, who are listening today that don't understand hermeneutical principle could you just throw out a definition of what that means for them so that they can understand it better the easiest way is we've all been brought up some way and we come with whatever principle that we believe about scripture. And that's how, that's the lens by which we read. So like you've heard of rose colored glasses, probably it means that you, you just have by default mode, try to see things in the most positive light. And then other people are just, you know, realist, we'll call them realist. And so they look that's at things nice through the most critical light. And so like, if you grew up in like, let's say a Southern Baptist evangelical household, you have a certain understanding of scripture before you even walk into it. Or if you grew up and you became like a very, very far left, you know, progressive type Christian, you're going to come to it with a different mindset as well. And so that's your hermeneutical principle. Um, so 
we all have one. I, I, and so I think you, you know, just like anything mm-hmm. else, be honest with what you are. And then knowing that you, you study not simply to put your interpretation on it, but, you know, to, to try to find that which will help you have a more full understanding of scripture. Absolutely. And I think that's really kind of, that's really important as we, as we dig into scripture, Um, you know, the background that I come from was very just straightforward, literal reading of the text. And as I have studied and, and been learning myself, there's a lot of narrative. There's a lot of good storytelling that's in scripture. There's a lot of poetry that's in scripture. So it's really important for us to, to look at these different um, ways and parables. Um, you know, that's how reading parables can be. If you, if you look at one particular parable, you're going to read it different than somebody else is going to read it because what you're going to get out of it is totally different from the way that they're looking at that parable. parable. Um, so it's, yeah. it's all, it's all an interpretation of, of the words. So uh, wanna, yeah. I want to bring something up because uh, with, with a lot of people that I've met, um, they get all uh, on page 17, second to last paragraph. I'll just read some of it. But many parts of scripture can be a challenge to fully understand. The message of a parable can change depending upon which perspective you read it, which is what you just said. The historical mm-hmm. setting can cause us to ponder more deeply how a text is meant to be received. Is it true history or more metaphorical? Finally, some scriptures just leave us scratching our heads because no two people can agree on what the text truly means. So I'll, I'll come at it from this way. There's two things I want to bring up. Number one, I do think there's a certain truth to something. Like, I, I don't think that, you know, when Jesus says something, he's like, well, what does it mean for you, you or you? I think there's something you can build upon, but Jesus was actually saying something. But I will say this. So especially for the more conservative people that I know uh, who sometimes take a very sour uh, view of reading scripture metaphorical, I've done a lot of study on the first 300 years of, of the church fathers and, and church. They read things metaphorical. Like, mm-hmm. so for a lot of people that I know that are very, very conservative, if they went out, went back and read Origen, it was a church father. If they read some of them, they would think they're heretics because they don't read a absolutely for the first two, 300 years did not read scripture expositorily uh, or literally. They just didn't do it. It wasn't, it wasn't a thing. It was a metaphorical reading about almost everything so wow anyway uh so i say that to say that there these are tools in which we get to the truth it doesn't change the truth but to be faithful to the interpretation of scripture you cannot discount one thing because you don't like it if that's the way it's supposed to be and and there's historical precedents in the church for using all kinds of interpretations to try to get to that truth which again I think we say there is a truth. You just, you're getting to it. Right. Right. Okay. I'm done with that now. <laughs> okay. It's, it's all in the words. It's all in the words. And, and his discussion question and the introduction was really good. Um, I, I don't have a particular favorite book, but that would be a great one for, um, for our teachers to really talk about, because that will also help you understand if somebody has like a favorite genre that they like but probably going to help you point out their hermeneutical principle and yeah. how, how they see things when they read things. So that would be a great discussion question. Yeah. For, so like my favorite, I can tell you my favorite book, my favorite yeah. book, Ecclesiastes, like Ecclesiastes, song or Proverbs, sure. you know, any of these wisdom books. Um, and, and cause I see it as fairly, you know, somewhat straightforward, but also deep meaning. 
like philosophical yeah. that you can apply to Ecclesiastes. That's okay. It's a good book. Yeah, I don't know that I have a favorite either nonfiction, fiction, or scripture book. I just uh, it depends on my mood. You're wishy washy. Uh, yeah, there we <laughs> go. <laughs> nice. I think it, I think it's more it's more mood centered. You know, when yeah. when I'm really needing someone just to smack me upside the face and get over myself, I go James every time. Every time. <laughs> I'm just like, all right, James, hit me with it because I, I really need it today. <laughs> okay. Exploring the scripture, historical setting, what you got? Um, so the first thing I would say, I, I, I don't know if I would necessarily agree with the dating. Uh, I think uh, the Book of Mark, from what I've studied, is probably late 50s, mid 60s. But again, that's only 10 years different from 70 to 90. I think that's decent uh, dating of the Gospels. But I do think Mark was probably five, 10 years earlier than 70. Um, but the point being is, and I've said this about some of the prophetical books. So he brings up how the different um, gospels focus on different things. And so I've also done enough studying to know that like the book of John places the cleansing of the temple at a certain point, Mark, Matthew and Luke place it at a certain point. Um, very well could have done it twice, right? So I think John puts it at the end of the ministry. I think Mark and yeah, Matthew yeah. put it at the beginning. Could have happened twice. That's not a, not a bad thing, but it's also a possibility, especially in something like the book of John. John just didn't care too much about um, the sequencing of events. John's right, really centered around, know. yeah, John's really centered around almost those those signs, right? The The signs of Jesus and then the I am statements of Jesus. And so everything kind of flows through these ideas of Jesus proving himself to be the Messiah through these signs and then through these I am statements proving that he's Messiah. And that's more important with John uh, on a philosophical basis than, than the timing. And again, for us to be fair in interpretation, we came from a culture that valued who, what, when, where, why. And in and order. In that, yeah, right. Yeah. So, like, but that's a culture that we have, and another culture really might be focusing on the why, not necessarily the when or the what, mm -hmm. right? And so that that brings up what we were talking about in that first passage. Um, that happens a lot in the prophets, like I said in Jeremiah and Isaiah. It, it's really hard to try to figure out the chronological order because it doesn't always fit right, but it does fit themes depending on what the author is trying to intend. So, anyway, there's that right there. Right. Which all goes back to that interpretation of, yeah. of understanding the author's intent. You know, were they trying to give you chronological order of happenings or was it to reinforce the theme of what they were trying to, to really point out yeah. um, with, with their writing? Yeah. And, and I, I, always thought the I agree. I think that's what John's trying to do is he's really his point to his gospel is to prove the deity of Christ. Yeah. It, it is all about proving that Jesus is God, you know, yeah. that that's it. So at the end of the book, it says, you know, these were written that you might believe, right? That's why I wrote yeah. this account yeah. that you might believe. And yeah. so you take it from there. And I think, and, and then I would also say, you know, I think John was the writer. Son of Zebedee was the writer of the, of the book. Yeah. Um, and, 
And so, but again, I mean, like these are things like I've never gotten just, I just don't get caught up on those things because uh, I've always believed that again, if God is powerful enough to raise Christ from the dead, and if that's true, then whatever I have in front of me is what God intends. And I don't yeah, care yeah. necessarily um, how I got here. Sure. I'm of Absolutely. a different culture of people. I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I do really appreciate that Kip points out in here that each one was written to a different audience, which helps us then understand why we have the, like the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and how their accounts, there's so much that's the same in each one. I mean, each one differs a little bit, but there's so many of the same stories in each one, but how they're intended for each specific audience. Because if you think about genres and writing genres and intended audience, um, I do not write a research paper the same way for a master's level class or doctorate level class as I do for a freshman in high school. Or for the Um, church at large, yeah. I mean, yeah. Right, yeah. You know, you're not going to read it the same way. You You don't write a letter to a young child the same way that you write a letter to the president of the United States because it's two different reading styles. It's two different reading levels. So you have these different genres because they're writing to this one specific audience to help them understand in a way that they read in the way that they understand the way that their culture processes something. So it's really important when we, when we look at the synoptic gospels and then here in John um, to keep that in mind that there was a purpose for the way that it was written and for the intent for the initial audience that it was intended for. Yeah. And I think at the bottom of page 18, right before the discussion question, um, last pretty much last sentence of that paragraph as Carolyn Lewis notes in her commentary. In other words, John is writing for a community that had been ostracized for belief in Jesus and now needed to hear what Jesus means in no uncertain terms. So again, I would go with John, the apostle as the writer, I would go with, he is persecuted at Patmos with other Christians and knows that the community is now at this time in 90 experiencing more persecution than they did back when Mark wrote in the, in the fifties and sixties or when Paul even wrote and Paul was already writing about persecution in the fifties and, you know, maybe 48 might be the earliest letter of Paul anyway. So, yeah. So he's writing as an exile among exiled people to exiled people. Yep. And so that's different than Mark. Yes. Yeah. He's trying to help them understand. Yes, this is Jesus. Yes. You're facing persecution, but this is who Jesus is. And you're on the right track. And and so there is, so then again, like, so you have in the upper room um, with John, you have these, um, you know, uh, Jesus speaking things like in this world, you will have trouble or, you know, Mm -hmm. but I have overcome the world or, you know, these kinds of things you don't have in Mark because Mark was really focused on it. Here's what's happened. Yeah. Um, here's how it went. So yeah, anyway. here's, here's how it all played out. Absolutely. And, and Kip points out in his discussion question, I think something that I think that it is Zebedee's son as well, but does that, does that really matter? I mean, that's part of the discussion. Does it really matter if it was Zebedee's son or not? I think what you do in that is it matters in, in, in what conversation you're having. So like, okay. like we were just talking about, like, if you're having a, if you're having a conversation about like the, um, 
reasons to believe that scripture is, you know, trustworthy, accurate, and true. Um, when it says, I, John, like in Revelation, for instance, I, John, you know, whatever, right. when it says, you know, then yeah, maybe. Um, but again, but if you're, if you're at a, if you're in a setting like this and you do have your default mode is like the word of God for the people of God, um, then you're getting the message. You're, you're wanting what God is speaking to us. And there really doesn't matter necessarily if it's from Mark or Matthew or Luke, you're seeking the word of God to the people of God. Right. Sure. I guess there's sure. that, but I mean, yeah, no, I get it though. Why people would, uh, would find it concerning like, mm-hmm. Uh, either way i mean on either side but but i mean i I just think you focus on what's in front of you again that's my default mode i'm just going to focus on what's in front of me um read it straightforward until there's reason not to right and then you know go from there and go from there okay so what's in front of us now is digging deeper comparing with scripture i see what you did (laughs) good transition So what, what did you get out of this comparing scripture with scripture? I think Kip had some really good points in here, but what did you grab out of this one? Um, just off the top of my head, and in some sense, no, this is not a birth narrative. Uh, in some sense, John was trying to say it's not a birth narrative because this 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 person has been fully divine, this right. holy son, the son of the holy, you know, son part of the, the Trinity. Um is is from the beginning i mean you know god is unified and all that good jazz and so um and then john is is just making sure that we're connecting this person of jesus again probably at this time too you had some gnostic heresies going around um in that day and age to where like the the uh, flesh was evil and the spirit was good and and so john is trying to connect jesus christ as the eternal source of creation and also the redeemer of creation the word became flesh so Mm -hmm. you can't say that flesh is not important or the spirit's not important you're trying to say this this is a huge plan of god when the word became flesh it was not it was also not uh something like greek gods right who who are born of women or this this is a completely different type of god deity that anyone in the roman world has ever encountered uh, it's different than anything the Jewish mind could accept. Um, and, and so when, when we say it's a poetic telling, that's what we mean. Like, again, John's not focused on the physical facts like uh, the other birth narratives that, you know, talk about the virgin birth or these kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, and the lineage, you know, yeah. the, the genealogy in there, yeah. John's going a little bit higher and deeper, I guess, in some sense. By yeah. saying, um, let's talk about this from a really big picture view. Yep. Yep. So I agree. Um, I guess what I've, I've got written down here is that it gives meat to the incarnation story and sets it apart from the Greek mythologies and it sets it apart from uh, philosophies of the world. Um, right. And it sets up the way that we understand it does. And this is what um, yeah. Kit brings up. It, it sets us up to understand that the word Jesus Christ when we read in the new Testament, the word is living and active, you know, sharper than any two edged sword. Mm-hmm. It's setting us up to understand God in a certain way. Yeah. I, I really, I thought it was interesting because this Advent season I'm, I'm preaching through John one 
using that as my Advent scripture, um, just because I see this time around, this is before I, I read any of Kip's stuff. I'd see this time how the first 18 verses could be that poetic telling of his birth. It's, it's quite intriguing um, just because there's so much just in this first, this first little chapter of John that's telling us about this fully human yet fully divine connection. Um, there's just so much in there that I'm just, I'm totally fascinated with it. And I love how he here took logos, the Greek word for God, for word and personified it, right. bringing you all the way back to Genesis chapter one. Um, you know, that in the beginning was the word, you right. know, and, and that, that to me, it was just, I mean, that really just jumped out to me. I loved how he did that. Um, but I really like this, this whole Psalm 33, six too, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all their hosts by the breath of his mouth for he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm and how, when we look at, when we finally personify the word logos as Jesus, right. that, that makes you go back and read some of these scriptures a little bit different because then you're looking at the word differently you're looking at that as you know this this means god here this is god here that is doing this the word that is being spoken is jesus and it's bringing forth life and um and it's just it's really interesting how it's taken that like kip says it's no longer just the voice but now flesh and bones it's a human being yeah and it would be good to point out too when we read word or logos um it's not just a written word or a spoken word. The more full definition would be like the reason or the logic behind things. And so, um, again, when you're saying that, it's 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 not that Jesus is just the like um, sum of all the written word. It's that Jesus is the sum of all of logic and God's reasonings and God's dealings yeah. and all these things. And and all of the world finds its truth and logic and purpose in Christ. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so and then you have the, bigger than just just a written or spoken word. Yeah. It's it's if, if you really look at John, I like how you said it before, but it's really this kind of this big picture. How John took it wasn't just the genealogy of Christ that you find in Luke and Matthew, but now you're pulling it back and you're looking at this big picture. Like in the beginning, from the beginning, was this word? Was this reasoning? Was this logic? All of this was happening, and now it's encompassed here in this this one human, this Christ, Jesus, and how all of this understanding has come. And so that, that helps us understand then all of this reasoning and everything going on all the way through to the cross, how, how this makes more sense now um, that he had to come, that he had to die, that he rose from the grave again. You know, I mean, just all of that just kind of pulls, pulls that back down and from big picture all the way down to the, to the cross, which is amazing. Yeah. And I think that I'm just, do you have anything left? Cause I think I'm going to push this there because well, that leads into yeah. the uh, next part um, where Kip's talking about, you know, the painting from uh, Rembrandt and, yeah. and I was going to see if I can share this. We'll see what happens. This never. Yeah. So, all right. Let me share this. Is this, let's like share. Is that sharing? Is that actually that sharing? sharing? Yep, I see it. I see it. So hopefully everybody else sees it too. Yeah. So you have the cherubs looking down. You have uh, Joseph making this yoke. Uh, um, yoke. You know, so they're fellow yoke people, right? And then you have the 
we're going to say it's the Old Testament, right? Um, down here, and Mary's looking, studying the word, but then looking at the word, studying the word and looking at the word. And so, anyway, I just wanted to share that um, so we know what we're talking about a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and what Kit brings up is, and this is important, like this incarnate word comes at all times. Like for Rembrandt, everybody was dressed like you would dress in 1600s Dutch attire. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, so the point being is God is incarnated once in time in Jesus Christ. But then also there is this new incarnation every year in every culture and whatnot. And Christianity, you know, unlike some religions, like, you know, like, for instance, I mean, like if you're a certain type of Muslim, you're learning the prayer book in a certain language. And if not, you're not going through your ceremonies, even, you know, your bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs in Judaism. You have to learn to read a certain amount in in the original language, it's never been that way in Christianity. Like um, none of our prayers have to be done now. I will say, you know, in the Catholic church, Latin took hold for a long time, but for the most part, we're just very, Christianity is different and incarnates different in every culture and in every, in every space. And, And that's something to be celebrated, I believe. And I guess that's what I wanted to make sure we got to when you had this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It dwells among everybody in different cultures and it takes on a different flavor a lot of times. Absolutely. And in different spaces and different times. Yeah. Um, Now the trick to it, and this is what I was, the trick to it is, so I was talking about hermeneutics um, and you asked me to define that. And so I was thinking about that. So like in the new Testament scripture, you have like the Pharisees, their hermeneutic was the written word and the law. And so everything that they thought about was judged upon this law thing, right? All right, then you have, you know, Christ, he seemed to, yes, he got the law, but then he also kind of saw things through the lens of grace, right? Yeah. And so the approach that Jesus had toward the Torah was different than the approach that the Pharisees had to the Torah. Yeah. And the way I would illustrate that for today's day would be, and this is where I see like on Cumberland Chatter or some of our other uh, beautiful discussions that we have. Right. You right. have people that in all sincerity come at scripture and religion with the hermeneutic of grace. Yeah. Then you have people who come to it with a hermeneutic of holiness. And so sometimes these are in conflict, right? So the, so like, John 8 is not the greatest example because it's not probably in the original text. But when Jesus, you know, the the prostitute is about to be stoned, mm-hmm. Jesus steps in, says, hey, you who have the first, you know, haven't sinned, cast the first stone. Right. But then he turns around to her and says, you go and sin no more. So there's this conflict to where, yes, you give grace, but then also you say, but now seek holiness. Right. And so. Right. Um, I've always said you can hold on to one without letting go of the other, but I think that's what we get sometimes when we think that only Jesus, like all we have to do is look at Jesus and ignore the written word. That's the trap. Uh And then the other trap is saying, no, this is the written word because Jesus is the living word. Right. And so you have to, you have to be faithful to both these things. I think that's what Kip was trying to bring up 
that last paragraph before the discussion question on 21, suppose this interpretation of Rembrandt's portrayal of the Holy Family is correct. In that case, it serves as a reminder of the necessity of studying the Bible and studying the child, which is the word made flesh. Yeah. Um, so that's, I'll pass it to you for your thoughts. I've got one more thing that I can, I can bring up. To illustrate. I, I, I really like this whole concept. Um, I, his last sentence there is like Mary, we come to understand the word more and more fully as we move between the words on the page and the child. There's an important point as much as I don't like reading and agree with Kip uh, uh, how much I've come to understand how much we need to read that the more we study, the more we can fully understand this, I like your analogy of the grace and the holiness of, of between the two. Because I think when we first come to Christ, at least I did, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to use me as an example. Because of my, my past um, and, the, and the raising that I had in the Church of Christ, it was a very literal interpretation. And it was more, I would say, pharisaical. You know, it was it was the word, the written word, and not really extending the grace per se. It's this is what it says. This is what you have to do, and not understanding the cultural nuances because that's not something we did necessarily uh, growing up. Is really study the historical setting and and really recognizing why writers wrote and to the audiences that they wrote to. And so as I've grown in my own walk, and have recognized the importance of reading. <laughs> <laughs> and the importance of studying, you know, yeah, yeah, I like to read now. It's good now, but I, I agree. I didn't like to read for a long time. Um, the more I see that, that combination of grace and holiness in, in the scripture and how it's important that we study, but at the same time also offer, offer people grace. Um, you know, I can say 10, 15 years ago, there are people that are in my life now that I would have been like, you, you are walking down the wrong path and just and just walked away from them instead of offering them some grace and and continuing to be a part of their life and trying to help them understand where, where they're walking at the same time that I'm walking down a path. Um, it's just that, that we see the path differently. You know, as we're walking together down this path, they may see the trees and the, the sky or whatever. And I may be focusing in on a, you know, flower or whatever that's, you know, that sort of thing. It's, it's really interesting how you have to have both. It's really important to have both. So the biggest illustration of it that I, that I was, when I was thinking would be Paul. So Paul, of course, at one time, Saul. Right. Very fanatic about the law. Yes. Kept it to a T was going to hell until he met Jesus, the word made flesh, you know? Um, And then he was no less zealot. Uh, no less of a zealot when he became Paul, he was still a zealot. He was still a fundamentalist, but he wasn't killing people. Instead, he was giving life. And there's the difference too. So like this adherence to the law, when you have no religion behind it, no enfleshed word, yeah. terrible. Now, and then I was thinking, what's another one? Jim Jones. Most people who are listening oh. to know Jim Jones. He started yeah. off written word, whatever. By the time he was done, he had been receiving special revelation from Jesus and the word no longer mattered. And then of course, everybody drinks the Kool-Aid. Yeah. Um, and so that, those are my things. Like you have to anchor the, 
the study of the word, the authority mm-hmm. of the word, like our confession of faith says, there is an authority found in the word of God, right? That's, and, and God will never go against God's word. God's word is not dead. It's still living. It's still active. And we do, we do have the word in connection with the word and flesh and the Holy spirit that dwells among us in our hearts and the groups that we're a part of and the churches we're a part of. And so, yeah. um, which again, again, that's a balancing act, you know, because it is. Uh, like I said, if you I just think that's go, important. Yeah, you have yeah. to you have to balance. You have to you have to balance that between the two. You know, it can't be all one or it can't be all the other. It's yeah. I think that's what what happened with the Pharisees. You know, it was all it was all about oh, wow. keeping the written law, right. and it had just ridiculous rules that people could not keep. And then they made up more rules that people could not keep just to keep them to keep the first rules. You know, I mean, it was ridiculous how how in depth some of those rules were. Um, but they were all about the written. It yeah. wasn't about the intent. It was not about the intent. I think when you say that, on God. the way you say that, it makes me think that like, one of the easiest ways of just of, of thinking about this is that the, the scripture is not a list of to do's. It's a, it's a, it's a love letter in which we develop our, our, for lack of a better term, our sensuality to God, like, uh, you know, our, our senses are, I mean, we fall deeply in love with the author of this word. Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. That's, That's all I got on that one. Okay. All right. Uh, I just will plug that I really appreciate Kip using a, a painting in this. Because yeah. um, as we talk about scripture, um, scripture itself is a, a beautiful work of art. Um, you have the different levels of narrative and poetry and um and so it's, it's really good to think about art and, and that aspect too. So how do we apply this to our lives? How do you we apply me. this? You day? first. <laughs> okay. Well, we, we have to, I, I really like how Kit points out that we need to look at different versions. Um, the translations are, are there for a reason. Um, and it's interesting how the message Bible puts this. Um, the word was made flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one of a kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out true from start to finish. Now, I don't always read the message Bible, um, but I do really like this interpretation of it because it's about moving into our neighborhood. It's about the word becoming flesh, the word Jesus dwells with us all in all of our neighborhoods. That was uh, John Knox, Westminster. Um, I really like this concept of Jesus living with me in my neighborhood. That's what we went back to what we were talking about earlier. I mean, Jesus is incarnated in us and we're not the same. We have our differences. We have, you have beautiful hair. I don't, right? Like you don't like to read. I read. Right. Yeah. And, but Christ lives within me. Christ lives within you. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and then we work out um, Christ in our life. We work out Christ in our family. We work Christ out in our home and everyone we influence. And, and again, that's different. I'm, you're from Wisconsin. You like cheese too much. I'm I from, do like cheese. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. It's just we have our personalities and Jesus in making those to the glory of God uh, for the proclamation of God. Mm-hmm. I liked a lot. Um, this um, quote, second paragraph on page 22, Frank Thomas writes, the beauty of this text is that Jesus moves into every neighborhood from um, 
I guess, Barrio Street Corner uh, to Gold Coast condos, from ghetto projects to suburban mansions, from the streets of South Central to the affluence of Palm Springs, from war-torn Africa to the extravagance of Dubai. The word, Jesus, dwells with us in all of our neighborhoods. And I think that's it's an amazing thing. And yeah. And, and, and when it's right, it brings life. It doesn't bring restriction. It brings life. Yes. Yeah. And this whole concept of Jesus in our neighborhood, and it goes all the way back to the beginning where we we're talking about the cultural differences. And we we're talking about the hermeneutical principle and how we interpret the scripture differently. All of that goes along because the, the way that somebody from the Barrio Street Corner is going to interpret what scripture is yeah. and and how they see it is going to be very different from somebody who's coming from the extravagance of Dubai. Yeah, it is. Now I will yeah. say this too, like I'm because I'm I'm one of these, I guess that would be, you know, probably more. One of the other things is though that this word is eternal, right? So there yeah. are certain principles. There's going to be that certain are eternal, are eternal yeah. and they don't change from right. um, street corner to street corner. Sure. Um, and the job then is to to figure out those eternal truths and live toward those, which will find expression in different. Um, now, again, that's me. Now, somebody's not going to agree with me. I'm guaranteed that there's going to be people that don't agree with me on that. But I think you, you, your job is to bring out those eternal truths, submit to them in a way which glorifies God in the context which you're at. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Totally well said. Totally no, well. No, said. it was pretty confusing, but somebody will figure no, it out. No, no, I totally got that. That was really well said. Yeah. But I love how he points out too in the in a couple paragraphs down, Kip says, no longer are the words just written on a page, but now the word has been made flesh and promises to be present in the sacraments, in prayer, in church, in relationships, in everything. Yeah. The word has moved in. And that's that's how we apply that today, I think, is understanding that the word, you know, is in us. And how do we share the word with our neighborhood with people who don't look like, who don't act like? who don't speak like, who don't think like we do. How do we do that? But that that's the word becoming flesh indwelling, but also understanding that the word is here in our neighborhood with everyone and we need to share the word together. Absolutely. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anything else in parting words? Cause I don't have any. So I don't think so. I think Kip did a great job on this one. Really appreciate your thought process and what you brought out in this, uh, this lesson. Good job. All right. Well, um, in that case, preachers, teachers, students learn a lot. Uh, by the time you read this, it's really close to Christmas time. I hope you got your turkeys and your hams and all your goodies and you get your family close beside you and, and that uh, the word become flesh in your heart. Uh, even as we celebrate the word becoming flesh in the world. So the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious unto you, turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. And we'll see you next week.